0: From WXEI 91.7 in Danbury, this is Public Reading Club, a radio program dedicated to discussions about books, writing, reading with writers and book people. Your host is Matt Caputo.
1: Thanks for joining us again here on WXEI 91.7 from Danbury, Connecticut. This is Public Reading Club. I am Matt Caputo. I have been your host now for uh, since we started the show last semester. Now it's the fall again here at Western Connecticut State University, and classes uh, began today. It's so new here on campus that uh, myself, um, uh, our engineer and co-producer Patrick Fournette, and our guest today, John H. Richardson we were all locked out of the studio for a little while so we didn't get in here uh right away but we 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 made it in eventually and this has got to be one of our best episodes of public reading club john h richardson is a prolific journalist probably best known for his work at esquire uh, premiere magazine also playboy and new york magazine he's taught um writing at several colleges He, he kind of grew up living around the world with his father who was a CIA agent, and he has a fantastic um, book about that called My Father the Spy. But he joined us today to talk about uh, his most recent um, release uh, a collection of his crime stories called Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan and Other Stories. Um, it's out now from the Stax Reader, uh, Neotext, and the Sager Group, who just have done a fantastic job of bringing these really great magazine stories, some of them that do kind of take you back in time a little bit but but all of them are very entertaining so if you can check out anything from the stacks reader series uh alex Belth is the um kind of editor and curator of that uh, and he's worked very closely with another prolific long-form journalist mike sager uh to put together a bunch of great collections and this is one of them not guilty by reason of afghanistan By John H. Richardson, who came up to the studio and chatted with us today. It was really great to have him here. I was especially glad to have him on, considering that I just missed him uh, by a little bit at SUNY Purchase, where I attended, and he actually taught there right after I left, and that was a little disappointing, uh, considering he's uh, somebody who would have been perfect to learn from, so uh, just another case of me being uh, a little late on everything I do. But uh, we're back again. It's really great to have you all listening. If there's anybody out there, we are going to get back to new episodes every month. I don't know if there'll be two every month, but there'll definitely be one. So uh, just stay with us. If there's anybody out there that has book recommendations, article recommendations, um, just send it our way via Instagram or you can email me, Mr. Matt Caputo at gmail.com. MR period, Matt Caputo at gmail.com is probably the easiest way to reach me or by DMing us on Instagram, which is at Public Reading Club. Uh, thanks so much, and I'll see you very briefly at the bottom of the show. Welcome back to the Public Reading Club. It has been a good while uh, now that we're back we have a few episodes on tap today uh, we're here at WXEI studios with one of my favorite writers for sure uh, I think that that's one of the benefits of doing the show I've been able to invite a lot of my favorite writers on and um, born in Washington DC John Richardson grew up in Athens Manila Saigon Washington Seoul Honolulu Los Angeles he uh, graduated from the university of southern california and from columbia university looks like he worked for the albuquerque tribune at first and then the los angeles times and then for premier magazine before going to publish stories in new york magazine playboy number of other publications and he had a long run at esquire uh he's taught at columbia university the university of new mexico and my alma mater Purchase college he's uh uh, just a prolific writer. He was one of my favorite stories. He was nominated for the 2010 uh, National Magazine Award, and he's here with us today, John. I really can't thank you enough, and apologize for the delay getting into the studio. Hi, man. It's great to be here. How how was the drive over today? Is it, you're just in upstate New York? <laughs> yeah,
0: no, no, I came from the beach. It was three hours. Uh, oh so my God! Glad to be out of what, the. Did car. you go to Jones Beach? Nah, just uh, visit some somebody out in the Hamptons.
1: Okay, so. uh... It it is great to be here with you today. I wanted to tell you that um we're we're talking to John because he recently released a collection of his of his stories um the title is Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan and Other Stories under the Stacks Reader series which is uh being curated by Alex Belf, uh, former editor at Esquire. Um I had a fantastic time reading over these stories. There's definitely some of them that have been lost to time. Um but uh, how did it come about? Before before we get into everything, how did this book come about?
0: Sager called me up and said, you want to do a book of crime stories? I said, sure. Hell yeah. <laughs> hell yeah.
1: <laughs> um, when when did you w- – this just came out kind of in the last year or so, right? Yeah, yeah. Like November. That's awesome. It, yeah. it was really a blast. We're going to get into most of the stories and a few others of his through the Chris, but. You know, John, you have a very interesting bio. You have all these places where you spent time as, as kind of a young person. Uh, do you want to clarify your kind of transient early years, w- being the son of a uh, <coughs> CIA agent?
0: Yeah, yeah, my dad worked for the agency, <laughs> uh, and we traveled a lo- around everywhere. We lived everywhere. I'm a cro- I'm a what they call a third culture kid. So, which is good for journalism because you know you're all about observing di- different cultures. You know, f- f- uh, a friend of mine's wife said, I get you, you're into subcultures. And I was like, huh, that's interesting, but I think they're all subcultures. Yeah, definitely. You know, just different levels of them.
1: Where were you actually born, Rob?
0: D.C. You were born yeah. in D.C.? Walter Reed Military Hospital.
1: Did, did your family live in Virginia Maryland, or Maryland?
0: <clears throat> My dad worked uh, uh, at the uh, agency headquarters there for And then we went back when I was 10 or 11. Wow. Lived another few years there.
1: Where did you actually do your high school years? Well,
0: I didn't really do my high school (laughs) years. (laughs) I did two years in uh, Seoul American High School in Seoul, Korea, and then I decided to separate myself from the institution.
1: Wow. So you just kind of went out and about for a while huh
0: yeah I did I went out and about and applied to some colleges because I thought I was special and I got into a couple of colleges and then didn't go got into an accident ended up going to USC because my sister applied for me I was gonna just travel around Asia where I was at the time I was my parents had left Korea and I stayed with a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells in uh, in a farmhouse somewhere out in the country and uh, uh, my sister met some administrators from USC and filled out an application for me and sent me a letter and said, you got into USC to <laughs> come to L.A. So I did it. <laughs> what year do you think that was? That was 1973.
1: Wow. What was it like back then?
0: L.A.? Yeah. Have you seen um, that movie about the uh, the buddy comedy about the actor and his buddy body double oh,
1: I can't think of the name Came of
0: out two years yeah, ago. yeah yeah it was just like that wow. the, the, it looked exactly like that it but LA hasn't changed that much except for downtown and all that
1: how long did you live there
0: I lived there for 13
1: years Wow yeah so l- l- let's just backtrack just a little bit so that we could get kind of on the on the right path here what when was your <laughs> earliest interest in writing I started writing,
0: you know, in high school, in, in middle school, uh, just because I like to read and, you know, you like to write, and then teachers started telling me that I could write, and so I figured, well, that's the one thing I seem to be able to do, because I wasn't as good at tennis and stuff as some of the other kids. and. Uh,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't as good at tennis.
0: <laughs> well, I was on the tennis team. I was on the swim team. I was on the football team. I was on the wrestling team. Wow. But there was always good guys. I went to a boys' school for, for a while. And, oh, really gifted athletes. So, you know, and math was a disaster. Oh, yeah. Eh, writing. <laughs> so, yeah, one pivotal moment in my life in ninth grade, a teacher gave me – well I'd written something and she wrote something on it and said take this to the counselor advisor you know for college counseling and stuff like that wow. and it said you know something complimentary about my writing
1: must have made you feel good
0: <laughs> made me feel like hey there's hope there there's, <laughs> you know, maybe that can do something
1: do you remember when you kind of first started pursuing journalism and getting things published
0: <clears throat> well um, I was I, I wrote for the college paper a little bit I interviewed uh, Ralph Waite from wow. from, from, from uh, the Waltons he was a super nice guy um,
1: <clears throat> for the but, college paper
0: yeah, wow. yeah it was LA you know? <laughs> yeah 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 but, uh, but then, <laughs> then I was uh, in college graduate school then um, years later and I had a girlfriend and her mother-in-law asked me well, how are you going to make a living and I said well I don't know and she said, why don't you try journalism? Another pivotal moment. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, hey, that's a good idea. And uh, so she wor- she had written for a prison magazine. So wow. I wrote a piece for that prison magazine. And the rest is history. Do you
1: remember what it was about? Or?
0: It was about a bunch of rich guys trying to raise money for some pri- prison project. It wasn't very interesting, except for I got to travel out of town and, and like sit down in some hunting lodge with a bunch of rich guys and
1: That sounds interesting enough.
0: I learned stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah, it was fun. I loved reporting from the beginning.
1: You you had that kind of vag like you said you kind of had that vagabond um, college tour. You kind of did you ever finish or?
0: um Well, I, I, I got a master's degree. Yeah, yeah. Uh, right. I was in a doctoral program, but I dropped out. Really? To you pursue were... this prison
1: magazine. <laughs> what <laughs> were you going to do your doctorate in?
0: Uh, I was twenty. Probably twenty uh, war war, World War Two era novels. Really, something like that. Or Heming. Uh, I was thinking about uh, Melville too. Uh, I was big into Melville just before I dropped out.
1: So you complete. Um, Columbia you drop out of that or whatever, how do you end up in Albuquerque to get your, is that your first reporting
0: job? Yeah, my first like f- legit reporting job uh, and I, a friend of mine had been offered the job and turned it down and I started going after that I was writing to them. and Were them you freelancing in New York? Yeah, I was freelancing in different for different publications. I had a piece of The Voice uh, wow. w- waiting in The Voice for years and I was like, they'd accepted it and wouldn't print it and I was like, I need that clip. Uh, was but it finally, like a, a reported story? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, I, the, I, I just hounded the people in Albuquerque until they finally gave me the job, or gave me a tryout. They gave me a two-week tryout. So uh, you
1: went out there, you live in a hotel or something?
0: Something like that. I don't even remember where I stayed. I must have stayed in a hotel. But then I, I wrote for about five days, and they said, okay, you got the job. Wow. That yeah, was good. It was good. What,
1: what year was it?
0: Um, it was uh, eighty-two or three or four. Like Eighty-four. The, world, the world's 84.
1: like a Cohen Brothers movie, right? Back then, over there.
0: Or? It was. I loved that in New Mexico. It was a great place to be a police reporter. There were all kinds of colorful crimes and um, desperados, and just uh, I like the small-time crimes. I like.
1: Lo- were you a crime reporter on the beat
0: that was my beat wow. i showed up at the police department at 5am to read the, the blotter <laughs> uh, under the supervision of the blotter uh, lady
1: what um what stories kind of resonate or stand out from that era you know any anything that you still think about or tell your kids about or i
0: I remember the guy who tried to steal presents for his uh for Christmas for his kids and got arrested wow. and so I went to the house and they were you know Christmas tree with no presents underneath it and all sad story yeah. woman who tried to rob a bank to pay over pay off her 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 boyfriend's debts uh with a with a lipstick tube <laughs> a, a <laughs> one legged prostitute uh who like specialized in older guys and she was a fundamentalist Christian. She no said, way. "In the Bible, it says you cannot offend the Lord through the flesh, or something like that." Wow. She had a. Everybody has a reason, and that was, that was a, a, a you know an interesting thing to learn.
1: I remember uh, reading the interview that accompanies the book. Um, you said you were making twenty two thousand dollars a year. Oh
0: God, yeah, I was.
1: Which is funny because that's how much I made at <laughs> my first magazine job. Twenty
0: years later. Twenty five years later. <laughs>
1: Uh, That's
0: the standard. I
1: don't – you know what's so crazy? Um, I think when you're a writer and you only make that much – your world is so much more simple, I think, maybe. Like, you know, you're always engaged in something kind of exciting. So it kind of – I don't want to say Mm. nothing takes the place of money but you're always in something kind of exciting so you, i don't you feel the financial squeeze but you also you know you get invited to cool parties too <laughs> yeah you know.
0: that happens especially when you move to hollywood but no i mean it was super fun i had a great time i loved the newsroom and uh had you know had mentors who helped me out and um uh it was it was actually in retrospect it was probably like the funnest job. Yeah. You pol- know, cop reporting in a sm- relatively, like, small but lively town. <laughs> Have you
1: ever been back there?
0: Oh, yeah. I was just there. Oh, really? Yeah. My daughter lives in uh, north of Taos, so I was oh. I was just visiting her.
1: That's cool. And then you eventually made your way out to L.A. to work. Is the Daily News still around, L.A. Daily News?
0: I think so. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah again, another friend was offered a job and turned it down. That's how I make most of my moves. And, uh, and, uh, so I went out there to cover film, which I had no experience aside from seeing a lot of movies.
1: And now I've seen <laughs> you, I've seen you kind of say film and used it, but to clarify for our audience, this is like the film industry or just the Hollywood scene or. It was
0: both. It was like, <clears throat> so there was some reviewing, I did some reviewing and then the rest of it was interviews, Hollywood people, actors, uh, and, uh. You know, it was pretty open. You could do anything you wanted. I did like the the wild animal farm that has lions north of the city. That kind of stuff. You know, it was just, like fun. Yeah. And I got E3. to interview. <clears throat> I got to interview a lot of people that I wanted to do. I so I got. Uh, I did Pedro Almodovar off wow. of off of his third or third or fourth American movie. I think it was his second or third American movie. So he was he wasn't really a well known person, but wow, it was a cool thing to do.
1: What uh, just kind of for other writers, uh, John? You have so many fantastic stories. There's I, I don't want to. Uh, some of these stories were probably written right around the time I was born. That's how long you're doing <laughs> and, and it, and I don't mean to age you. Oh my God! But what I wanted to yeah. ask you, what I wanted to ask you was, is y- you've done it for so long. We we probably have a couple of MFA students who listen to our podcast. How, how much has writing been a journey for you? do, do, do are you one of those people? Can you can you see where you got better in your own work like oh yeah turning Uh, points for you
0: well it was totally a journey because at first I was just trying to make a living as uh, you know doing this because I didn't know what else to do really and I had you know I was writing short stories and publishing a few of them and stuff and so so um so at first it was just I was just trying to write put on the clothes of the newspaper basically you know and also try trying to make a joke once in a while and stuff like that push the envelope a little bit but <laughs> i wasn't really thinking about the envelope i was just like can i get auto de santa fe into this story about burning a big statue in santa fe then i like i had read john didion and stuff but i hadn't read her as a journalist and i started reading more in journalism and seeing like you know george orwell the classics and going, oh, my God, you can really do something with this. and But I was never a reader of, like, Rolling Stone or, you know, I would read political stuff. I would read New New Republic and all that, but I wasn't a fan of long-form journalism particularly. Wow. But then I started to discover what was there and the riches and some, again, stuff I had read but hadn't really thought of, oh, this is something you can do, you know. So I started... So then I started wanting to do more than newspapers. I wanted to try magazines. I tried some long-form newspaper stuff, but uh, it's still very constrained in style. Because
1: uh, when you're talking about a long-form, news, again, I don't know what long-form was back when you were working at it, but probably today a long-form newspaper story is like 2,200 words. <laughs>
0: you know what I mean? Uh, yeah, Something like that. I mean, you could do a series, which I did a couple of, but, you know, it was still within the newspaper style. And the newspaper paper style is very formulaic, uh, except for for some reason in the sports right, pages. Right, 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 right. <laughs> so, so I started wanting to do that. And I, and a friend of mine once again got a job at, uh, at another place, at Premier Magazine, which had just opened up. And I was covering the film industry. So I started freelancing pieces to them. And, and right away, they wanted more of a written thing. You know, so you were focusing more on making something happen on the page with a beginning and an ending, and you know flows and a flow and s- some style and all that. But then, <clears throat> after a couple of years, the, so I started doing the bigger features and all that. But I was still writing fairly conventionally. Um, and then um, I did a story about this uh, an assistant at the Cannes Film Festival, and that was sort of a breakthrough piece for me.
1: I wanted to ask you about that because. In this interview that you do with Mike Sager here in the book, you mention a couple of stories that I wish was in the book.
0: Yeah. And, 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 and <laughs> well, this is just crime stories.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's, it's um, in an interv- you know, in the interview that accompanies uh, Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan, you say that uh, some early features includes one on a ruthless young screenwriter pushing a sentimental script. What was Ooh. that about?
0: I don't even want to bring that up. <laughs> I, I feel sorry. I feel bad I re- <laughs> slaughtered that guy at the beginning of his career. Uh, uh it was uh, uh, it was about this guy who had written a script about his hometown and all his buds and i happened to be at a film festival and one of his buds had a little short film in the festival and i went up to him and i said hey you know you're a friend of tony's right and he goes Tony you know and he was like don't I'm not going to talk about that guy and I was like what and then I met I knew this director who had also worked with him he was like Tony that fucking guy (laughs) (laughs) can I say that anyway that, those two guys made me think, what's up with this? And I I've tracked down the director and got his story. And it was basically like everything everything sentimental and sweet and loving he had s- basically uh, betrayed. And the guy who started out writing with him was also very bitter because he was, his name was cut out of the credits. And it was a story of Hollywood ambition.
1: I'd love to read that. Like, I would love to. If it's out there, (laughs) I'll have to try and find it.
0: I'm sure you can Google it.
1: And then there's the one about the wild man producer. Is that a different person? Oh,
0: yeah, Joel Silver. Wow. Right.
1: What was was the story with him?
0: Uh, Well, that was a fun story. That was another one of my first stories before I sort of stretched out a little bit. But he he wouldn't do an interview, and so I interviewed everybody in Hollywood who hated him, which was a lot of people. Wow. and uh, he got really mad about it. And, like, Did he sue you? Called no, he called me and yelled at me, and then he made like he tried tr- to make he, friend of you. He became he befriended me and sucked me into his dark world.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Are you still friends with him?
0: Uh, I, we were friendly when we last spoke, but that was a long, long time ago.
1: And and you said you considered that kind of your, your breakthrough, huh?
0: No, no, it was his assistant who was my breakthrough just because it was a trivial subject and I didn't feel like there was a lot of weight on it. Really? Uh, and uh, it was the Cannes Film Festival and there was lots of energy, you know every <laughs> night went till 4am and you and uh, there were lots of parties and, and lots of fringe characters and wildness and And I wanted to try to capture that feeling and I also didn't feel like anybody was paying that much, that close attention because I was just writing about an assistant. I wasn't writing about anybody important. Um, And so that sort of just unleashed the energy and I was frustrated at that point. I'd been at the magazine for three years. And that's what we were talking earlier about, like you were saying about Style and 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 magazine style writing, long form journalism, and I, I think like you do have to get, or at least unless you are born to that in some way, like Cameron Crowe, right. you you have to get frustrated with the formulaic kind of approach, uh, or at least that that normative gray voice of 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 ordinary journalism, and sort of say like, how can I sort of jazz this up? Because you get when when you get frustrated, you're like. You've already considered a lot of things and rejected them, so at some point you get ta- you get takeoff momentum.
1: So to clarify, Silver's assistant—he was quitting his job. What was? His t-
0: well, he was a kid, Alan, and he was twenty-five, and he had risen through the Hollywood ranks since college three years, right? And uh, his relationship with Joel Silver was a little bit tormented, and he had met these these. These um, Middle Eastern guys who had a lot of money and they wanted to make B-movies. And he thought you know, the Joel Silver lethal weapon kind of thing was B-movies. And so he was coming out of that thing and he was tr- going to try to create himself as a mini-Joel. Uh, and they had this movie that they'd made with this action star right? i went so when I was doing Joel, he confessed to me on the beach that he had this plot to create make his own movie and escape Joel and uh and become somebody and I said "Oh, that sounds like a cool story. I'll that's the guy that. Alan. Alan. So I would go to the set of his movie and What and was the
1: name of the movie?
0: Nemesis was the name of the movie. So we went so that's the movie Alan was taking to Cannes. So he fin- he over the course of that year he made it. I went and visited him at various locations and stuff and got to know Jean, uh, the Jean Claude Van Damme uh, substitute Olivier Gruner, who, who was a lovely guy, um, and and so then we went to Cannes. And by this time, I knew these guys. I knew the Arab guys. I, you know, yeah, it was yeah. a whole like scene. <laughs> it was hilarious. Uh, I mean,
1: that sounds like a really interesting piece. Like that, that seems like you need a follow up. You know.
0: Well, the cool thing about Cannes is I didn't realize until I got there is that there's the Cannes, and then there's this whole sort of other level of can that is I don't want to say rug merchant just because they're Arab guys, mm-hmm. but, uh, but I mean it's B movies and it's 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 um, you know Sylvester Stallone's brother is the star right right, and right. there's uh, there's a lot of very familiar last names but but the first names do not <laughs> yeah happen, yeah, yeah.
1: that's interesting and uh, like um,
0: it's funny it's a, it, see I like that kind of louche world. Uh, and I don't see why editors hate it, but they generally do. But Susan Line, the beloved, my beloved editor at Premiere, really let me off the leash a lot.
1: Well, I think that's where the interesting stories happen. Um, I don't like any story where you can kind of go in knowing essentially where it could go. I, li- I like the story where you know, the writer didn't know where it was going to go mm-hmm. you know, until mm-hmm. the end. Um, you worked at GQ. Was that for, were you on?
0: God, st- was I at GQ? <laughs> were, you,
1: were you on staff there? Or you just oh, yeah,
0: I wrote some pieces for GQ. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, yeah I, I, no, I just wrote some pieces for them.
1: And, and Esquire, were you on? I yeah. was
0: there for 18 years, yeah. Esquire, I was a regular dude. You were one of the regular guys there. Writer, yeah, yeah. writer at
1: large. Yeah, yeah. But in this book, uh, only the title story is, is actually from Esquire. It really, is that true? Let's just bring and then. Um,
0: but most of them were, were like started at Esquire and rejected by them. Think so? <laughs> no, not at um, least a couple.
1: You, but then uh, the book opens with this fantastic story, "Death of a Small Timer," which was actually published in the Columbia Journal. Yeah. In 2010, uh, how did you how did you find that story? You told me a little bit before, but just take us through. Essentially, it's about. Uh, an agent in hollywood right that had his own that had his own business and essentially these were dirty movies or some type of sex modeling not
0: porn but bondage and stuff probably soft
1: core type of a thing and how did you to me that's
0: he had a dungeon in his studio i believe you know a prison cell you know you i i i
1: I, i've got to be honest i find that that I I especially we're coming up on a time now where there's a lot of looking back on that stuff. And there's got I I am I am really so glad to have you here today, John H. Richardson, who's with us here today on WXEI. It's I gotta be honest, that world of B movies, um, I don't know why, but it fascinates the hell out of me. And I have a notebook, not this notebook in front of me, but I have a notebook where I have maybe half a dozen stories that nobody will ever publish Mm. like that came out of my own research of B-movies I'm the type of guy that I love to find the movie that's on YouTube for free now because who would ever pay for this and Mm -hmm. somebody just wants to show their grandkid that they were in it 35 years ago you know what I mean (laughs) and I spend more time googling what happened to the characters and the actors in the well, movie.
0: You're lucky you can do that now. You can find out about these mysteries. And the
1: reality is, you've done all that work in in this book in an era where there was most of it in an era where there was no internet or limited mm. what you could find on the internet. It True. starts out with this fantastic book, Death of a uh, Pardon Me. It starts out with this fantastic um, story called Death of a Small Timer about this guy. How How did you find the story?
0: So this movie actress I named uh, I knew named Jewel told me about this old guy who was once her agent and was the agent for Demi Moore when she first came to town as an 18-year-old or whatever, and that he was this kind of sweet, kind of (laughs) sinister old guy who looked out for some of them and some of them had less warm feelings, but that he was a real good story, real colorful. He had a storefront. Um, agency on Santa Monica Boulevard and she said go in there t- you know talk to him tell him your photographer because I was doing a lot of photography then and and uh he'll show you the Moore's first pictures he takes the girls into the back the girls and takes their nude pictures and then uses that as his thing that's his that's his routine so I did as instructed except for uh yeah I I, I did pretty much as instructed and he <coughs> Uh, He, you know, it was okay. It was an interesting little bit of color. I just thought, but my editor wouldn't go for it. And so I just forgot about it. And a year later, he turned up dead. My Jewel calls me up and says, so all these women who worked for him, who were his models, are now trying to find out who killed him because the police aren't investigating. Wow. So I was like, I got to do that. That sounds too good.
1: What do you, I mean. Of
0: course, but my editor turned it down again. So I went out anyway. I think he, la- he gave me money to go out, but didn't promise to publish it. And then he wouldn't publish it when I wrote it. So I wrote it a couple more times, still wouldn't publish it, and I just forgot about it in the drawer until the kid from Columbia called me up and said, You got anything in a drawer?
1: Wow. <laughs> a kid for, he, he asked you if you had anything in a drawer. She, well, she, she did. Yeah, wow. she was
0: like an undergraduate, and she was editing the magazine there. That's amazing. Yeah, so.
1: And I'm really glad that that story saw the light of day because if, if, If you read it, it's a very, how can I say it? It's void of these weird factoids, and it's more, like, I I don't, Correct me You don't really go into Like where the guy was born And I don't think You got that stuff Did you? Like where he was born Where yeah, it was what not, his parents It's not really
0: about that it, no, like I, It's about the world You know There's all these Small time agents And models And strippers And a woman Who makes wrestling movies Well that's the and thing That I was
1: going to That's the thing That I was going to say It's it's even though There aren't those This weird You know th- There aren't those Biographical nut gra- you know, Graphs in there I can see every room That's being described in the story, (laughs) and I can I can smell the cigarette smoke, and And I can and
0: it's a world people don't know about or see except for you know Mike Sager's great story, you know uh, that became Uh, about John Holmes, yeah, the Devil and John Holmes, right,
1: uh, which is a fantastic story, which became Boogie Nights, yes, but but I can tell you that this this that how what was his last name how Guthu yeah his story. Um, It it was like right out of a a, You know E-True Hollywood story It had that I could I could almost see The old cars That might have been Outside his storefront In that era It was just so perfectly painted And I I really enjoy stories like that And I think the readers will too If you find that story In Not uh, Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan Which is out now um, By Neotex The Sager Group And the Stacks Reader Whoever's involved here Um it's about that portrait of the, the scene and the people that exist in it. And it leads me, it's in a special category of the stories that I most like. I'm most interested in stories about how people live their lives. That's what I'm most interested in. I'm not really interested in, it could be anything. You know, I, I recently wrote a story for Newsday about um, disabled veterans who get together and play hockey and share their kind of experience mm-hmm. it, it could be that simple mm-hmm. for me and it could go, it could go right up to the guy who has the dungeon in his basement to to, <laughs> to you know to do these I love
0: those stories and and every now and then in those stories you get like a little gift of plot you know? yeah. so i have a little murder mystery in the heart of the a little little bit. Through thing and and then you get his 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 girlfriend comes in at the end and lays down some cold Hollywood truth. Uh, That's great. I I think, you know. uh,
1: What do you think happened to him?
0: I think he killed himself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I, but it was one of those rational suicides, you know. Like I'm, I'm getting sick. I'm not. Think he might be. have had AIDS or something. No, no, no. Just like he, he probably thought he didn't have much time to go, and you might as well go out on a good, uh, you know. With, he wanted to be in control. He was hiding his club foot his whole life and all that stuff. But that's what I love. I love those details and and what makes people. Another story that didn't get into it is I did. The guy who was the started open carry Texas he's most responsible for bringing us open carry in Texas than any other guy and I really got along with him he was very vulnerable and honest and told you know he had his crazy ideas I think crazy but okay I had one great moment of plot when they were protesting for open carry and a guy came across the street and he was for concealed carry and he had his concealed weapon and he was like pulling it out and I thought I was going to be in the middle of a gunshot. They, they, they had a standoff and he, the, you know they were all <laughs> it was like oh my god I can't believe this is a gift from the gods <laughs> for my story but then at the same time it was like I didn't feel like I had gotten anywhere I hadn't gotten what I needed from him, and so we went shooting. He, t- I asked him to teach me to shoot, or to show me what it w- did for him, and to explain it to me. And that's when the story came to life. Because, you know, there's a m- there's always something like with the Gethse story, it turns a different way. Yeah. But Yeah. You want to try to be in there with all the real life, and then hopefully get a little f- t- some twists. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to wait it out. <laughs>
1: Then then after that, that great story, uh, Death of a Small Timer, there's the story about O Gringo Loco. Oh, yeah. And let me ask you, uh, like I, it's one I, I was really trying to wrap my head around. What, what compelled you to write that story? You know, I mean, what, what, how did you get onto that one?
0: Uh, my, uh, uh, he had written, he was trying to write his story, and my agent gave, showed me his story and said, you know, he can't write. <laughs> I don't want to say that. He's a sweet guy. I still talk to him a lot. Uh, El gringo loco. Yeah, 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 yeah. He came out to New York last year. we hung out. Um, but you, you know, it was a fantastic story in a way. Uh, he He was a high school and college football player. He took he got, you know injured and started taking narcotics, you know, uh, oxycodone and stuff. He was a, a coach, and his mom, by that time he was a coach in a high school and he was a good good sweet guy. And his mom said, you know you should dry out uh why don't you go to mexico and teach english for a while and dry out (laughs) so guadalajara it's like he immediately got into the party scene and started selling uh ecstasy for for what turned out to be a member of the sinolog hotel so he got deeper into it he had his network and all of this and um got arrested and all that so
1: it's only a ten year old story, huh?
0: Yeah. So so it was so basically it was like, well, this is like a s- interesting story that happened to you, but you know you want to go back and introduce me to the cartel. <laughs> and he was go- he wanted to go back, so so we went back and hung out with uh Raul the hitman. <laughs> and uh and it was a, a, a quite a trip.
1: And that was a that that was a Playboy story. That must have had a huge budget to do that one. It must have what? Must have had a huge budget to do that one.
0: No not really. Trip mm-hmm. to Guadalajara. Yeah, uh, probably fine. You know, uh, hotel. And uh but but again, uh he was he he was had he's a genuine guy and he he's actually um uh, responsible citizen now and uh, all cl- clean and everything. But he he uh he also had like a real loyalty to the to the revolutionary criminal world, and and s- sort of longs for it to this day. Even wow. though even though he's really glad he's out of
1: it. And are you, I wanted to ask you something. You know, are you a big you a big note taker or recorder? Oh hell yeah, yeah. You're big on yeah. notes and record- I some guys recorder. Aren't.
0: I run the recorder. I introduce it fast, and I try Me to too. I try to normalize it so that they pretend it's, it's, it's not it's there. there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and but I also like talk to my tape recorder sometimes i do make them know, aware that it's there i don't want to like sneak anything No anyway. i know what you mean especially not the people i uh, you know cuz i'm with them so I, don't wa- I, I don't i don't want people to stare true.
1: at it the whole time which is what i try and avoid you know what i mean it's like the yeah yeah the, yeah. the looking down at the tape recorder a hundred times but oh, when
0: you're it. with people for weeks at a time they get used to you turning it on and off and they you know depending on their level of paranoia they become aware
1: more yeah. or less aware of it there. and sometimes they, they they got they save something up for when you br- when you bring that recorder <laughs> that's, true, out. that's
0: true too that's true because there are
1: some and very famously one of your esquire colleagues uh tom Janot, who does not really take Maybe he takes notes, but he doesn't record anything.
0: Well, s- you know, some people are, are less dialogue-driven uh, than others, and I, I i could probably write a whole story just in da- found dialogue, it's you a, know. Because yeah. uh, I like the dialogue, and it brings people to life, and I don't need to be the person saying the thing. In fact, I prefer the scene to do the work, you know. Um, and you
1: do that so often, and... and um there's but there's there's places where you use first person where it's so appropriate and it's not like outside of the, it doesn't feel you know what i mean like mm. it's taking over the whole story um not guilty by reason of afghanistan The the book's title story it's just an intense tale of broken friendships and the the, the worst type of end to any relationship uh, being dismembered yeah, and buried in a shallow pit <laughs> yeah uh the, you know kind of the um this 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 kind of disintegration of this uh, relationship between two filmmakers that leads to murder mm-hmm. ultimately. Um, how did you come? How did you come in contact with that story? God, I forget.
0: I think that might have been Mark Warren, my editor esquire. Fantastic
1: editor. Yeah, love Yeah, one of the best that ever lived, probably.
0: Yeah, I did all my all, all my pieces for. Really? Him. Did you yeah. work with him? Yeah, he's yeah. the best. Uh, but anyway, uh, yeah, that was. Uh, that it was funny how that story was, was just sort of f- everything came to you came to me like everybody agreed to talk eventually uh and i got into the prison and all of that but um
1: uh, essentially these two filmmakers uh nathan powell and the other one was J- jaweed weisel that's right uh they were making a film that dealt with there was Islamic themes in there and, and, and stuff like that. Ultimately Nathan Powell killed Weisell and accused him of anti-American type of sentiment and activities and this, which he claims led to I guess guess was trying to claim it led to his temporary insanity into killing him. What was your what was your take on the whole thing? <clears throat>
0: Well, he was a, tr- a disturbing person to meet. I've met a lot of prisoners uh, over the years, and a few of them have been totally tweaked out, if you know what I mean. And he was one of them. I, I wouldn't want to be in a cell with the guy. Wow. <laughs> uh, at, you know, and it's hard to know why somebody is like that. I mean. Th- I, I I met a guy who was in prison for 40 years who was innocent, and he was c- crazy violent in his 20s. He said I went through my adolescence in prison basically, so I was a nut for a while because I was in prison yeah. and, and an adolescent. But um, but yeah, he was a disturbing guy, and his story was crazy, and he definitely had some kind of breakdown. I would say you know, you chop somebody up and all of that. But And you see it. I mean, the golden for me was sometimes you're depending so much on interviews and meeting people and setting the scene and blah, blah, blah and dialogue. But there it was the arrest report. My God, when I read that stuff, I just could not believe you know, the cops stopped him, and he had the body in pieces Unbelievable. In, in the boxes in the back, and he's spinning these lies. Opening like scene
1: s- of the Stephen King movie s- or something. Second
0: by second, it's like uh, I was going to uh, the bathroom. Oh no, I was going to bury. You yeah. know, it's like, uh, I was gonna, you know. Oh no, it was uh, an accident. Oh, and you're just like, he's so paralyzed and desperate and disassociated that uh, yeah, it was a killer scene. And I thought that. Yeah, it was it was pretty crazy. I felt sorry for his wife. You know, was trying to be loyal and everything. Um, right. And, and the Muslim community part of his his the equation were really bitter and angry, uh, which I could understand why they would be, but they were just carrying. You know, really not pleasant to be
1: around yeah, <laughs> yeah. and in the end it, it it in the end it seemed just like a nasty type of defense he was putting up you know oh
0: yeah well you know he was guilty as hell and all of that uh uh but you know that said i think there was i mean he, he the elements that his homicidal man m- madness fastened, fa- f you know fastened on were not completely illegitimate. He had these paranoid delusions about nine eleven. He lived in Lower Man in you know, with a view of Lower Manhattan. He wasn't he wasn't alone in that. Yeah. You know, so there's a
1: He was sincerely disturbed. I mean Yeah. You know, there's no doubt about (laughs) it. And then in the in the uh that that story, the title story, is followed by really my favorite story uh in the whole book. I, I I can't say enough um you know I I think that some people um sometimes in academic institutions sometimes in other places uh they don't really know what like journalism and long form journal and how a well reported story could be as out of this world as anything that's made up or anything that's maybe uh, art you know what I mean? And this is one of the most fantastical, um, mind-blowing stories that I've ever read. So essentially, this story is another Hollywood tale from John H. Richardson, who's here with us today on WXCI, about this completely fraudulent, would-be Hollywood actor, producer, financer, con man uh, type of a guy by the name of Sonny Gibson, who... Uh, conveniently created a totally fictitious uh, image of himself as a mafia member.
0: Mafia kingpin. It
1: was unbelievable.
0: He wrote a biography. It was published. He was reviewed.
1: Um, I I I told you this before. There's no world. I, we already discussed that My my favorite stories are about how people live their life. This guy is choosing to live his life in the craziest... Like, I can't even see the point after a while. <laughs> like What's the point of this? You might as well just take the money and run and go... Well, you
0: know, interesting...
1: Fame as a, is a hell I, of a drug.
0: I feel like this... Is, I'm coming off sleazy. These are my crime stories. But, you know, this is a guy who pretended to have a 21-inch penis. Right. And, well, this isn't in the story, but apparently he would rather use the plastic penis than actually have contact. Wow. Yeah, that, That's the domain. That's, no, that's it.
1: There is a little snapshot in here uh, <laughs> no pun intended where it says that he was actually using this white plastic prosthesis of some type while engaging in, in sexual activity. So it, it did seem pretty bizarre. But the the list of things that this guy did to lie at one time he tells somebody that he's Mel Gibson's brother.
0: He's claimed to be Eris, Jackie Onassis's gigolo. Right in print,
1: mafia gigolo and <laughs> hitman. It was all.
0: He had twenty million dollars on an island, and people. This, this, this is again. it's kind of like the Hal story. It's a kind of a world of like Hollywood below the level of A movies, and there's there's in this world there's. Old ladies with a million bucks in the bank who will give it to the right guy f- who showed up at their chur- want- church wanting to make a movie about the farmland right. and stuff like Wh- that.
1: which is part of the story. It's amazing.
0: And, and I sat there with that woman. Her husband was dying in a hospital bed, and she had given this guy a million bucks. uh
1: that was and that was the other woman right the woman with the two sons yes yeah and the son, and she almost a million dollars yeah. she gave this guy uh, uh,
0: and there and then you know filmmakers who worked for him and wanted to believe that they were going to get paid for their cinematography fee. <laughs> found,
1: I found a few things. A guy
0: who let his farm get burned down. Right. His, his cornfield to got make born, this movie. Burned down five thousand bucks worth of corn for like a movie he claimed to make you know it is the producers a shot on video for like ten thousand <laughs> bucks and then oh it didn't get a release. Right. Just right. Thanks right. for the money.
1: Oh my God. And um <laughs> i'm i'm so fascinated by stories like this because i you know i i outside of of my writing and uh my my studying in the mfa program here i do a little charity work we have a charity ice hockey tournament you know nice. it's sometimes impossible to get people to give us a hundred bucks <laughs> it's it's sometimes you, you're, you're li- like you're, yeah you're asking somebody Some who owns a business to give a hundred dollars for a cancer and men's suicide charity event and you're getting a sideways look. Mm-hmm. But then you read a, a story by John H. Richardson where people are literally throwing this guy two hundred thousand dollars. And the the truth is it's the promise of celebrity mm-hmm. that people are looking for. It's not it has nothing to the money is on when you're when you're seeking celebrity or attention, I think the money's no object you see well, it in,
0: as the director of his movie said, uh, you know better but you still go for the fried ice cream. That's the thing <laughs>
1: you know and and you're saying to yourself, wow, like it's 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 this world that um, people feel like somebody will want to take their picture afterwards. Well yeah. it, you know it's like hey, you know if I put money into this movie and it does halfway well, I'll get my picture included in the party pics of Los Angeles magazine or something like that.
0: Well and also like I mean he was hitting churches. He was getting people with good at feeling good intentions, right. you know, maybe a little vanity in it, but also, you know, wanting to help the oppressed and stuff. He was he was he was a dark character. I mean he did he did bad things after that story and you know, God knows he'll probably I hope he doesn't hear this. Is he still alive? <laughs> I probably yeah. He wasn't that old.
1: Um, you know, what was, uh, uh, it's, it's funny because when you see somebody go through those great lengths to deceive people, y- y- you wonder if they could, if you could get away with what he was doing today in 2023, if sometimes I think you could. Oh yeah. You yeah, know, there's vulnerable people all, you know, I had um, they go
0: after these, you know, people who are in crisis or
1: not, not the best example of my friend's. But I I knew a guy from Queens who lived not far from my childhood home, and he was very very much like this this person uh, Sonny Gibson that you're describing in the story. He would go his scheme was he would go around saying that he was going to start a hip hop label mm-hmm. a record label, but it was. It was crazy. He was renting office space, and he had a secretary, and he had a business plan that was about 10 or 15 years outdated. And he was sending it around. And, and yeah, like, I don't want to – there's not too much I'm giving away here, and I'm sure he (laughs) won't hear the show. But, yeah, some doctor in Canada – Gave him over two hundred thousand dollars wow. one time wow. to start this right, rec- and you say to yourself, "If I had approached this guy and I was on the street and I needed twenty dollars for gas, you wouldn't probably wouldn't have yeah. gotten it." You know, yeah. and it's, 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 and I think that there's people who are um, people who very much go asking for this type of stuff. Sometimes, I mean, the, the one woman who who gave away all her family's money to these people. I mean, I wonder if there was anything sexual going on there. There must have been. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Mm-hmm. like what the, Because that level of entanglement... I,
0: I think there was probably, a, you know, his flirtation. She was older, not that that discounts it, but I think it was more it was more like uh, romantic than sexual. Right. Uh, I don't think, you know, with her husband in the hospital, I don't think so. Not the way she was. But you never know. But, you know, I, I like these these stories. Some of them are are you know more straightforward crime stories, and some of them are are, are you know character stories They're like great. that. But but you know I think uh, uh, you try to write the world that you're in and I do I love Lush and I love I love those kinds of in, in between worlds because I'm a third culture kid and so being like not quite a Hollywood star being like a not even a B star and struggling with that I can sort of relate to that and all that um, I ended up doing a lot more stories so in, and in Hollywood that B world is just not written about right it's, you know I did B movie actresses and I did the 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 um, the uh, American film marketplace, which is all these. F- be movie filmmakers from all over the world. It's a very colorful scene. It's just as valid to me as Hollywood is. The films aren't good, but so are mo- neither are most Hollywood films. But well, it's a culture.
1: I want to ask you two questions. Before you went to LA, were you? do you consider yourself a movie guy? You like going to the theater?
0: I like art films. You know. Yeah. I mean, I Godfather, yeah. you know, F- F- Truffaut, you know, that kind of stuff. I right, was right. a typical snob. But uh, you know I mean everybody liked uh liked drive-in kind of movies mm-hmm. in, in in the 80s and 70s and yeah. all that so I mean there was there was already a sense i mean Pauline kale had been around for a while so there was a sense trash gave me a taste for art or art gave me a taste for trash or something yeah. like that, that 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 the whole but the idea of the whole world being interesting that doesn't take a rocket science is, right you know, but I think most people who cover Hollywood are celebrity-oriented or a a business-oriented, uh, and I just wasn't for some reason. You
1: were kind of people-oriented, yeah. yeah. And,
0: and I liked, uh, like, my first stories were about uh, a Foley artist, a woman who, like, made sounds with her shoes, uh, <laughs> and, you know, and she had all these different shoes for all the different sounds that she needed to make businesswoman premiere yeah she had slut shoes she had (laughs) businesswoman shoes and they didn't look anything like what they actually were that's Uh, amazing but they sounded that way and i i just love that kind of stuff
1: that's amazing no it's a cool job to have for sure um what what i wanted to ask you is um one thing we skipped over though uh nathan powell from that that Afghan store. He only did fifteen years and he should be out now. Hey,
0: jeez, really? Did, God.
1: did he get out? You know I hope he got better. Yeah. Because it it uh that was a funny thing that I caught at the end that he really pleaded down to almost nothing. I mean well fifteen
0: years is not nothing. Well speaking as for having, a pretty having red handed
1: that, murder, I mean you know. That,
0: well, red handed pretty literally I think <laughs> totally but not to laugh but, it was, but uh but uh, so yeah. I, 15 years is a long time. People are very cavalier about prison sentences. Ah, you should do 10 years. God, man. A year, it's a, a long time. A week in prison is a long time.
1: Oh, I believe it. Um. The But just with, with the grifter story, the Sonny Gibson type of a thing... You never really interview him. You make phone contact with him, yeah, right? Do you yeah. ask him any questions, or he's just...
0: He, he, he gave me, a, a, agreed to an interview, and I went, and then they got, like, what are you doing here, kind of thing. It was some kind of mistake or game. Was he there? But I ended up speaking to him extensively out uh, of my deposition when he sued me and lost. But and I'm sure I don't know how much money he had, but he was spending like a hundred grand or something, fifty grand, the super just mirror? to hassle me. Yeah, yeah. Because there was no way.
1: Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the guy was irrelevant, pretty much at that point. Did, did that was the only time you ever saw him in the flesh, though, huh? Face to face. Yeah. Wow.
0: And also the plastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Un- unbelievable. He Followed
0: me into the bathroom.
1: Really? Yeah. And w- did he say anything to you?
0: No, but uh, he made sure I saw what you know. <laughs> – no, nah, I, I didn't see his plastic. But no. I, saw, I saw it inside his pants. He was, like, swinging it around. Come on. Yeah.
1: That's crazy. The guy's absolutely nuts. I think one of the funniest
0: – But he's – you know, very few – I've done a lot of bad people and murderers and stuff, but they're not vile. But he was a vile guy. Yeah. I don't really like writing about that. It was just so insane that uh but i'd much rather write about people i admire or 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 feel have souls and they're complex no but you
1: know what um it's a caution in some ways it's a cautionary tale about what what you get into when you try and backdoor your way into hollywood or you try and kind of leech on because there's you know again every you know I, we have something on this show. It was actually discussed a couple of episodes ago with a, a writer you may or may not know. He's a James Patterson collaborator named Michael Ledwidge. And I brought up to Mike that um, he's got maybe 20 books or something like that mm-hmm. over that, uh, 20 novels. And Reed Farrell Coleman, I don't know if you know him, the crime writer, he he was also a guest on the show. Mm-hmm. He's also got over 20, like mm-hmm. 30 books or something like that. Um Lawrence Block, prolific crime writer, hundred books,
0: <laughs> probably
1: yeah. a, probably a hundred books, but like fifty-seven that we really know about. You know what I mean? There's probably he probably did do a hundred yeah, under different that names. incredible. He, he wrote a book that takes place in this city that he completely forgot about that I t- <laughs> that I told him about. That's hilarious. Yeah, yeah, and uh, the city of Danbury here, and and uh, so of all those writers that came on, there's actually only three movies. And only one of those three movies, they're all by Lawrence Block, only one of those three movies is actually true to the novel form, and that would be A Walk Among the Tombstones with Liam Neeson. It's interesting to see what gets made and what doesn't get made. And then he had one that they completely ruined, uh, Eight Million Ways to Die. Oh, right. right. So he's actually had a couple of movies, but Eight Million Ways to Die got moved to L.A., Mm. I mean, he's like the most prolific New York crime writer, and they moved the book to L.A. It didn't make any sense. And then I think, so basically three movies, they're all Lawrence blocks. How's that process been for you through the years? You've written, everybody loves these true crime stories. The last 30 years, I think we've heard, based on a true story more than Mm. anything, it's probably been written on movie posters more than anything. What's your experience been with Hollywood, being that you were basically a Hollywood guy for almost 15 years? Yeah, well,
0: uh, I optioned a bunch of them, and uh, some of them have gotten the screenplay stages, but the first one that's actually hit the screen is is going to be is called Sing Sing. It's going to be at Cannes, uh, not Cannes, the Toronto Film Festival next month uh, in the main competition. And it's a really good movie. It's about prisoners putting on a musical at Sing Sing, wow. which I wrote for Esquire. Uh, a maximum security comedy <laughs> yeah
1: that's, that's amazing what do you remember about doing that story
0: oh god it's very vivid because i had to go into sing sing every week like on were you a, living
1: of, in katona i or? was living
0: in katona i went in there every week for about two or three months two months probably uh to watch rehearsals auditions rehearsals the whole thing and then the final production which is at the, the sing sing theater it was a really moving thing, and really, uh, f- you know, fascinating. It was cool because it was focused on them doing something. So I was really just sitting there with my notepad. I didn't interview them, you know. I mean, I did, but uh, but it wasn't about that. It was about them rehearsing this show and putting it on under these grim conditions, um, and uh, the show. Seeing the sh- seeing them up on stage. In costume uh, doing stupid stuff and like wearing <laughs> wearing grass skirts and things must have been hysterical it was it was it was great and it was really moving and the cool thing about the movie is the one of the guys who was in the movie is the co-star uh, I mean one of the guys who was in the prison is now the co-star of the movie Wow and a couple of the other characters were in the prison and they're in the movie now that's too. amazing yeah 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 cuz the guys who made it were really they went into prisons and they spent a lot of time with the prisoners and with the guy who was the director of the of the play, um, and uh, have uh, you know have really put their souls into it. They they didn't just like do a flyby. I, and it's instructive because I did I sold one story where I did the, my usual thing. I I'm about. To, I have a couple of paragraphs. I I exist in the story. I'm sort of trying to find this runaway heiress. And I end up meeting her at the end of the story. But I'm just a reporter, right? In the movie version that they wrote a couple scripts of, I ended up with a gun trying to... In a car chase with her, trying to escape the bad guys, it was ridiculous. But they, they, those kinds of people are also the people who never call you, who don't ask for your notes, who, who, you know, do, you know, the people who
1: write the scripts, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: And and these guys wanted all my notes and everything they could get a hold of, and they optioned that script too, just so they had the rights to the material. Uh, that the actors were performing, you know, they they wanted the real thing, and in fact, their first drafts were almost like the story, wow. and they became more fictional as their drafts went on. It was really interesting to watch.
1: What I, you know, so just to kind of, because you know, we 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 have, maybe we have some listeners of the show. We've been still trying to figure out if people are actually out there listening, but some of the listeners might be in our MFA program, and I, I, I can only tell them so much about the process of I, I've only kind of been through. Um, The most basic stages of, of what you're speaking about In the optioning thing I did a story many years ago For the New York Times About emergency backup goaltenders And listen Before I wrote I'm being real Before I wrote about them Nobody knew what they were Nobody knew what they were And there was I could have written A 5,000 word Easy story about it In the blink of an eye I could have written A 10,000 word story about it There were so many Little side stories Ultimately That like, you know, I kind of, like, had a producer very interested in it. He approached me, and then the next thing you kind of know, there was a big holdup on the New York Times side, and I don't know what happened with it, and I don't know if they ever signed. A couple of I, – I don't know if I've told this story already, but a couple of months ago somebody approached me about a story I did. I don't want to say the story right now, but a story I did 10 or 12 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to – these guys are interested in doing a documentary, and – you know, I've gone through so much in my life since I wrote that story, John. And I'm sure you've gone through so much in your life since you've done every story that you have. Somehow I managed to have every single recording and every notebook I, I, I did to make the story. <laughs> but it, it's been very much a, hey, we have this phone call tomorrow night. You need to be on it. And we have that phone call and it's a Zoom and it's two hours long. And then we go nine months without talking again. Has that kind of been your experience with some of the other options you've done?
0: Well, I mean, there's always a A lot of hurry up and wait period of not talking. But you know, um, I don't know. They've all sort of unfolded in different ways. Like, but basically, you know, uh, people, most people take no for an answer. And uh, you know, so they they shop you for a while, and, and if it up. doesn't sell, they they give up. A couple of people have been real tenacious, and these guys actually made it happen. But they're different because they're also screenwriter directors, so, and they've made a, a couple of movies. So, so anything
1: in this uh, book ever get close to being optioned?
0: Yeah, I'm pretty sure I optioned some of this stuff. Well, Gringo Loco got optioned a couple times. Really? Yeah. Uh... Uh, Wasp Woman. That was the f- my f- yeah, and I wrote the script and it's just the I, the director just got in touch with me. Uh, Which one is it? This year, the Wasp Woman, uh, and he's still going out with that script, <laughs> twenty years later or longer. Uh, he that was like an early story, uh, and it, you know you asked about like uh, the the um, grifters, both that and the Wasp Woman were trade stories. I used to love the trades, because they would do a story and they would do it pretty good. You'd get the outlines of the story. And definitely with the grifters, I mean, he, that he had published this book and the reporter had you know, said this book is a total fraud. <laughs> But it, that's where you found you know, them you mean in the yeah, trades yeah but he was still doing it that's what you know he was like producing this movie and he had this backstory. and I was like what the hell mm-hmm. uh, and you know this is one of the things that I definitely learned from Esquire and David Granger and da- Mark Warren is like you know yeah that's, it seems like it's been done but has it been done it's, you know, it's, it seems like a pretty rich story but how, how you know how much how can we do it And so you go after something and, you know, take a story that's, uh, you know, a trade story that's pretty well done but doesn't really – either is caught in the middle of process or it's just, you know, not a real narrative and it doesn't have as much interview – muscle and research muscle as you would give it if you're gonna do it in a magazine right so it's like out of clips or f- quick phone calls and stuff like that and then you go at it and you can really you know i was always looking for story elements like what's what's a you know who's the colorful character what kind of dilemma are they in it was really like f- out of s- storytelling rather than journalism s- per se Uh and uh so that's sort of like what led to the kind of stories I did which is that like I wasn't trying to make new catch news or interview the celebrity or get the head of the studio or something like that it was like what's a good story it was story? way more
1: nuanced yeah what's a good story oh.
0: who's a, who's like uh who's a, who's, who's a weird and different
1: <laughs> before we let you go i i i want to ask you the, uh, these will be I'll let you get out of here soon but just that you can't interview you it seems because every other podcast you're on i think it's a prerequisite you have to talk about the paparazzi story <laughs> because you had a i didn't realize this until much much later i mean really within the last maybe couple of weeks that you kind of had a photography background and i didn't know that
0: my and, first job was a photographer for the army yeah <laughs> huh? no nah, no i didn't really i mean i i love photography and i uh, you know Do you still shoot her yeah, I mean, not like with a fancy camera because I gave it to my kid, but uh, but I'm definitely a photo fan, and I you know love famous, you know real good photographers and good photography. Uh, and being like in a magazine like Esquire, you're always like aware of like great shots, it. great shooters. So, uh, but no, nah, you know that was really about Princess Diana because everybody was like suddenly the paparazzi right. or the killers. And it was just one of those, like, overwhelming moments when everybody was after these guys. Yeah. And I thought, well, what's it like for them? Uh, <laughs> Did you? I met this guy, Steve Sands, who was, like, this notorious paparazzi. And I thought he was funny as hell. And one thing I respected about him is, like, the cops would, you know, author- people are always kissing movie stars' asses, ki- movies' asses. Um, so... They would tell you you can't be here on this street, this public street, this like, and take pictures. Which there has been, you know, litigation going back to 1904. The Supreme Court saying you can take a street pictures on a public street. And Steve would get in these cops' faces and say, recite them chapter and verse. Say, I'm not, I'm not moving. This is a public street. I'm taking my pictures. Uh, and I've I admired his tenacity. I love a bulldog reporter.
1: No, it's the best thing to watch <laughs> and to read sometimes too. Um, and then the other story I have to talk to you about. Um, it's it's a fantastic story. I I didn't. I'll be honest with you. I, I I definitely knew of your work, but I don't think I I really sunk my teeth in until I read the the last abortion doctor, which was just. Mm. A very, very intense piece that was nominated uh, for the 2010 National Magazine Awards and it was published in that year's uh, Best American Magazine Writing with, with a bunch of, of great writers. Tell me about it. Like, wh- how, how did you come to do that? It was something that came down to you at Esquire or was it something you were interested in?
0: Is that the Willie Parker story or the the Warren Hearn story? I did two big abortion stories. I forget the titles. Uh, Which one was that?
1: The Last Abortion Doctor. I remember it. I can't think of the guy's first name. Hold on. Uh,
0: I think that's uh, that's, that's, uh, Hearn. Um, Why don't we
1: talk about both of them?
0: Well, it's interesting. Um, I mean, Hearn was just after uh, uh, Dr. Tiller was killed and he
1: Hearn is the last abortion doctor
0: yeah yeah it was that was a powerful powerful thing because Dr. Tiller who had been this, w- w- one of the main abortion guys f- doing late terms uh, w- um, had been assassinated and uh, so it w- Mark was like find out who's, who's the backup like all the people who were at Tiller's clinic where are they going to go so I found Warren Hearn out in Denver, one of the, uh, you know, then pretty much the last guy standing full-time. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, I didn't know much about it. I was just, you know, once again, a reporter being thrown mm-hmm. at a story. And, uh, you know, the people who ended up talking to me had been on a plane going into Warren's Hearn's clinic, and they were from a religious community in, um, in Canada. And she had a fetal deformity, and she wanted to, f- to preserve her ability to have 12 children, which was her int- goal in life. Wow! And um, so, you know, that's what I didn't understand, and what it's still most people don't understand is that those late-term things—they're mostly really disastrous, ghastly situations. Uh, and that's what I found myself in because Dr. Hearn let me into his clinic and his life. Um, and he's a prickly and kind of brilliant, and uh, uh, he's been under, you know, he like can't, uh, he's got people outside his house for years. Uh, and uh, so he's under sort of, he's pretty prickly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, and his wife was a doctor also from Cuba, and they were, you know, really in a dis- in a difficult situation at a difficult time, and uh, it ended with this interview with this this f- couple that wanted to sort of t- try to explain why they had to do that. It was powerful, man. It was powerful. Uh, and it's and it's not like a story of sainthood or goodness or no. you know, these things are really nuanced. Uh, Just something
1: that exists in the world and and your portrait of it in, in a lot of ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, he wasn't really happy with that story. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. But uh, but just, you know, it's, it's there's some tough parts in it. And then in the other story, to my astonishment, uh, I mean, like, that guy let me into the clinic and, um, l- 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 you know, I basically watched him almost do everything and it it was again really moving and so complicated and so many human stories and people in uh, s- struggling with def- you know desperate situations so, uh, i mean those kinds of stories sort of bring out a different kind of style and you have to you have to be there in your writing with that kind of gravity so it's a whole different thing for me, and it you know it was, i was great. i'm grateful to have been able to do it
1: did you when you were a young writer did you see yourself tackling stuff like that? Not really
0: no, no I was much more about the demi monde <laughs> uh, but but uh but you know Esquire, this might be interesting for your young m f a students is like Esquire was always trying to figure out what to do with me because I would do like oddball stuff and and there was some taste for that, but then there was like, well, can he do politicians? Okay, let's try policy. Yeah, not so much for politicians. Some certain ones, but it has to be in the pocket. Yeah. A certain kind of guy I could do, and a certain kind of person I just couldn't vi- resonate with. Right. And then so you're, okay. You're, you're
1: w- too cool of a guy, John, I think, honestly, <laughs> man. I think you're a bit too cool of a guy to, to get with these geeky politicians.
0: It's not that it's just, I just like I need to get somewhere. I don't want to just transmit your mess. Bush, no no your, disrespect
1: your... to anybody we already mentioned or praised on here. I don't think a lot of the political stuff was Esquire's best stuff. That's just <laughs> that's just my personal and I don't disagree or agree or disagree. Um but uh I, I don't agree or disagree. But before we let you go, okay. you wanna tell us what you're up to now, John? You think there's stories loud? are you are you is there any magazine work you're still doing, or narrative journalism? You're uh,
0: well. I'm doing some stuff, but it's um, I'm not really doing any narrative. I'm, I'm sort of like I've got a book about this adventurer who uh, I went to the Arctic Circle and then to the uh, most dry desert in the world with. And he does a lot of adventures, but I, I'm not in shape to go along with him anymore. You know, he's, <laughs> he's walking across Africa now. Uh, uh, and and I was going to go with him, and then I busted my ankle. I was going to go. Well, I was going to go with him, maybe for the last hundred miles, yeah. or fifty miles, or twenty-five miles. Week. <laughs> every every now and then, he's finishing a transcontinental hike, and he calls me up and says, "Want to do the last hundred miles?" Um, but uh, but so I'm interested in that. But I'm also playing around with um, these things I call picture stories, uh, and. Um, Got a little website
1: for them. Really, picture <laughs> stories? Well, what are they?
0: They're picture stories. They're stories with pictures, like you know, like
1: uh, photographs. Yeah, mm. yeah,
0: photographs. Even PDFs or like maybe little movies. But you know, they're 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 not really connected. They're sort of like little dreamscapes that go with stories. <laughs> you can check it out. I got a website. I haven't really opened it, but it's open. It's called the Electric Campfire. Wow, that's a no, cool. No spaces.
1: The Electric Campfire. That's cool. I promise the very last thing. Is there any of your stories, you know, as a journalist, it's hard to count how many you've done after a while, right? Um, but are there any of your stories you, you still you, – I'll be honest with you, John. You seem like a pretty laid-back guy and kind of a happy-go-lucky guy. But, I mean, um, any of your stories you say, you know, if somebody just took another look at this, it could be a movie. Somebody – you know, is there stuff that you just can't figure out why – it hasn't gone to that next level. I don't
0: really think about movies that much. I mean, I mean, I, 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 I don't really think about that a whole lot. But I, I, I only do... only ask, because it's
1: so... Some of your writing is so cinematic, and all of the reporting yeah, it's, is. It's and all of the reporting is. This
0: stuff is... It is. And I, I... And it's about Hollywood, half of it. Yeah. I, I think... Well, a third. Third uh, of it. I, yeah. But I, I think, you know, like like the th- the thing who would have thought that the sing sing story that I had to foist on David Granger at Esquire because he really didn't want to do it And I I reported the whole thing and then I called him and I said, David, you know, come to the opening at least. (laughs) And and he said, all right, I'll send a photographer. And that's why we got that story in. Did he do it? Did he
1: come to it? He didn't come to the opening,
0: but he sent a photographer just because I stayed for the the whole thing to the opening. And he was like, oh, I got to throw John Richardson one. And that's the story that they make into a movie, not all the big crime stories with the like action sequences. So it's that's really about the passion of the filmmaker, you know, uh, and they and they really had a vision and really wanted to make it. Everybody else is just trying to make a deal, you know, or ha, or kind of likes it, uh, but they're not vested in it in the way that a filmmaker is. And so, so I don't think about that. But what I do think about are the store a couple stories that I've finished and haven't published, and those those those.
1: How uh, many do you have? You think. Yeah,
0: like three or four significant things that, you know, killed me that they never got published. And, like, you know, the Hal Gathu story, Death of a Small Timer, that was one. It would never have – it would be one of those stories except for that graduate student called me up and said, do you have anything? How
1: long was it on the shelf? Ten years. Wow. Yeah. Amazing.
0: Yeah. And I, like, I I did this – So oh, so, like, I, I did this one story for Playboy – uh, about a gigolo, a black guy who was a doctor who slept with white couples, white wives. And I couldn't publish it anywhere and I met an a, a editor from Playboy and I said, he said, do you have anything in this drawer? And I said, I got a story that cannot be published in America because it's about a black guy. Was it, it
1: Steven Randall?
0: No, and, and so that was optioned a bunch of times. But you know, it was like, so that came out of the drawer but I have a story. <laughs> These stories happen to me. I have a story about a guy who who became a famous, ended up being accused of pedophilia, and he he was a famous photographer, and he went after the you know younger models, and and he killed himself, and I wrote an obituary story about him, and I knew him, and I knew his wife, and and it was like, so there's two stories. One story, you can tell the story about the black doctor. You can't tell the story about the sympathetic pedophile. That's crazy. (laughs) But he was a soulful guy, and and he he had a, you know, mental thing and you know his story his story deserves to be told that's my attitude about most everybody
1: some of these hard things are you are you the type of guy are you gonna are you gonna keep going as long as you can are you writing yeah
0: i don't know man i I got a grandkid right now i'm focusing on that that's great Uh, that's great (laughs) no i mean i i guess i i I've done 3 of these little short things and I've been doing tinkering with other things. I'm not really committed right now, but I think I will be next year. <laughs> I'm busy right now.
1: Well, John, listen, it was really I can't tell you how how much fun this was for me and how humbling it is to have you have you come in here. I'm just a huge fan of yours and uh I really really enjoyed the book. The book right now that you can latest book is uh, several books, including one about his father, the spy. My father, the spy. Uh, the the book that we spoke about today is Not Guilty by Reason of Afghanistan and Other True Stories. It is by John H. Richardson. It is available everywhere books are sold uh, from the Stacks Reader Series and Neotext. Thank you for joining us today, John. It, it really is just a pleasure. Uh, I, I hope we get to hang out one more time uh, well, in the future, man. Thanks. thanks so much. Super
0: fun. Appreciate it.
1: So there you have it just a great chat with john h richardson who's uh you know a prolific journalist i I think we could have done two or three parts of this episode with him he's just got so many stories that i didn't know about and so many that uh after reading not guilty by reason of afghanistan i wanted to talk to him about and there's probably a bunch i'm gonna go google when i go home from here now um stay with us we're back up um, probably at least one episode a month on WXEI and available on streaming so thanks for staying with us on public reading club we will be back soon we'll be back with october episode um, within the next few weeks i think we got something uh really cool up our sleeves so again read as much as you can and let us know what you're doing thanks again and we'll see you on public reading club
0: Public Reading Club is a production of WXCI 91.7 Danbury Radio, hosted by Matt Caputo and produced by Pat Furnett and Matt Caputo. <music>